is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, it is going to be verses 5 through 17. So again, there are verses on the back. So please note that. So 5 through 17. And uh, I'll need to make sure. Okay. So in this passage, uh, obviously, again, you're just going to kind of make some observations. Paul's writing, obviously, to the church at Corinth. And so we're kind of jumping into the passage. I'll give you a little bit of a background uh, in verses 1 through 4, kind of what's talked about there a little bit. Uh, But you can kind of walk through this passage, and you're going to see some different things taking place here in this passage. So make some notes of some things, some observations, things that jump out to you, maybe words that you find interesting, or maybe words you don't know what they mean. Um, And that was in one of these verses. There was a word that I thought I understood the meaning of, and then I looked it up and I realized that I wasn't quite as accurate in the understanding as I thought. But in a sense, it kind of is close. And so there may be words like that that you're not sure of. And so take a moment and do that. Uh, Themes, if you notice any kind of themes running through the passage, go ahead and note that as well. So I'll give you guys probably about 10 minutes or so as normal, and then we'll go ahead and break it apart in just a little bit. All right, so go ahead and dive in.
right. So that was about 10 minutes. Hopefully you guys got to at least work through some of the text. Um, one thing I always want to encourage is I know that you can't go through all of these verses in 10 minutes, right? I understand that. So what I will always encourage is do this on your own, right? Like if you feel that it helps you, uh, sometimes it helps me to be able to actually just print it out and just write all over it, circle, highlight, indicate things. Um, so if that helps you, definitely translate this into your own personal devotional life. Get a notebook, get a binder, something like that, and start putting these in there um, if it helps you that way to be able to see the text a little clearer. So first thing I want to ask, just to get us started, what are some themes that we see kind of running through this text? What are some themes or ideas that seem to be emphasized to like a high level of repetition, maybe even some verses or a few verses. What are some themes that we see here? Topics. Anthony. Okay, yeah, forgiveness is talked about, right? And even in the one verse, it's mentioned quite a few times, right? Uh, what's another theme that we see running through here? Okay. Okay, so something, something in the church was causing sorrow, grief, and that led to apparently involving some level of punishment, but now we're talking about forgiveness, which is hopefully going to turn that sorrow into grief into joy, right? So there's a few different emotions going on here, right? There's some grief, there's something going on in the church there, at least in Paul's writing to the church. What else do we see as a theme or some ideas coming through this text? Anything else jump out to you? Okay. What what in the text made you kind of Okay. Okay, so that idea of sincerity and how we're speaking about Christ, from Christ, versus those that maybe are insincere. So our lives and our words should match our desire and devotion to Christ. Absolutely, yeah. Any other themes we see in there? Yeah, Jeff. Okay. Right, gotcha. Yep, great point. And actually, even in that verse, we'll dive into that. The opposite of death unto death in verse 16 is what? Life unto life. And so we're going to dive into that, absolutely. All right, awesome. So I love that you guys saw a lot. Oh, Sandra, did you have something? If you got something, I'm sure it's worth sharing, so... Yep. Yep. Actually, that aroma, that offering, right? That burnt offering or that incense offering, right? We're going to dive into that a little bit too. Absolutely. 
There's actually a phrase that jumps, when I was studying this passage this week, and I was reading through 2 Corinthians, um, kind of transitioning out of Psalms in my morning reading. Um, Psalms is broken up into different books. So the first 41 or 42 chapters is book one. And so when I finished that, I kind of felt like, okay, Lord, maybe I should step away and, and dive into something else. And 2 Corinthians was on my heart. And so I started reading through that here a few days ago. But one of the things in this passage that jumped out to me that really led me, and I started praying about, Lord, would you have us to do that verse on, or that passage on a Sunday night, is actually in verse 14. And there's a phrase there that, again, speaks to this theme, this idea, this, I, this mindset of Paul to the church. And there's a phrase there that talks about triumph in Christ. So if you didn't circle that, didn't get to that verse yet, underline that, circle that. And also, we need to note the word always, the word always, because he says, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Always we triumph in Christ. There is never a time in our life as a follower of Christ where we are not triumphing in Christ and we not already possess the victory, the end goal. It's already done. It's already finished. We've already triumphed. In Christ. And so I love that phrase. And so we'll walk through the passage and we'll get there shortly. Maybe tonight, maybe not. We'll see how the Lord leads. All right. So, one of the things that I mentioned when we were giving you the passage is we started in verse 5. Now, the reason I did that was more for just the number of verses. I was trying to make the number of verses in the passage small enough that I felt like it wasn't overwhelming you. And taking off those first five verses, or first four verses, shortened it up quite a bit. But obviously, we still need to understand what was the beginning of this chapter speaking about. So the passage, this passage that you just read, is set up by Paul referring to writing to the church before this letter. So before 2 Corinthians, or what, what we call it 2 Corinthians, it wasn't called 2 Corinthians when Paul wrote it. It was a letter to the Corinthians. And it was the second letter that we know was written to the Corinthians that's recorded as Scripture. That's why we call it 2 Corinthians. Or some in our culture call it 2 Corinthians. I don't know why, but some do. Okay, so 2 Corinthians. So in those first four verses, Paul's talking about that previous letter that he wrote. And seemingly, as Jeff kind of touched on, that letter was sorrowful, sorrowful in its demeanor. So there was a lot of heavy things talked about. A lot of sorrowful things were talked about. Paul's very attitude was one of grief. He, he was grieved to even write the words in that previous letter. And as a result... In verse 5, he says, But if any have caused grief, he that has not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. He's referring to not only he felt grief in writing these things, but it caused grief in the church as they began to deal with these things and wrestle with these things. Now, some in church history and, and the majority view of church history has always said that what Paul was referring to was the letter of 1 Corinthians that he was just referring to 1 Corinthians. And obviously we know what was dealt with in 1 Corinthians. A lot of heavy topics. There was a lot of sin in the church, and he was dealing with some of these issues. However, some have suggested, some scholarly opinions suggest, that there was actually a letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians that was not considered Scripture. 
Now, we know that other letters were written in this time in the early church, and by God's moving, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, the writers themselves, the apostles, understood there was a difference between normal letters written and Scripture. There was an understanding of that. Peter references that about Paul's writings. He identifies them as Scripture. So again, even the apostles had an understanding of this. So some think there was this other letter that was written, a much shorter letter, dealing with one specific sin issue in the church. And Paul was grieved to write it. He understood they were grieved in receiving it. And it also caused some sorrow in the church as they walked this out. Um, So again, there is some debate on this. Maybe it's referring to 1 Corinthians. Maybe it's referring to another letter that was lost, that we have no knowledge of what was written in there other than just assumption. But either way, however you want to see it, the content really doesn't change. The point is, Paul saying, I wrote this to you. It grieved me. It grieved you. But now we're at a place of moving on. And that's really the beauty of this chapter. So when we pick up in verse 5, We see that reference to that previous letter. Now, there's a word in this verse that might jump out to you as strange. What word might that be? Overcharge. Now, when we think overcharge, we think literally somebody who charges you more than whatever the service or job or whatever was worth. And so when I was reading through here, I thought, okay, I don't know if I get what exactly that word means. The word actually translates to mean put a burden on someone. So it actually means to be burdensome, to put a burden on someone, to lay a burden on someone. Basically, it's this idea of Paul's goal. What was his purpose in writing this previous letter? It wasn't to burden them with grief. That's not what his desire was. I wasn't trying to do that. My actual desire was to be a blessing to you. So Paul's goal is not to increase their burden, but to increase their verse. Paul's goal in writing them previously was not to increase their burden, but to increase their blessing. And by the way, I don't know if you're like me, but there's times where I've read God's word and I felt like I was being burdened. I gotta do this. I have to pray. I have to go to church. I have to do this. I have to say that. I have to give my money to the church. I have to, I have to, it's just a burden to do these things. But I believe Paul's intention here is the same. I think the word of God is not intended to increase our burden, but intended to increase our blessing. So Paul seemingly really didn't like having to write what he wrote before because it knew it might hurt them. Also, he feared it might bring pain into their shared relationships as a church. Now, whatever the hurt might have been, whatever this sin was, it appears the Corinthians responded well to his letter and set about to deal with the man who was in sin, this sin situation. Now, again, there's some debate on this. Some think, and you can jot this down to the side, some think the man caught in sin that was being dealt with, that this previous letter was talking to, if you believe that previous letter is 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5 would be the man that most likely people think is being talked about here, who is involved in a very inappropriate relationship. And we'll just kind of leave that there. You can go back and look at 1 Corinthians 5 when you have time and see that. But the church dealt with this situation. This man seems to have responded to that. Some also think that this man was merely someone in the church that challenged Paul's apostolic authority. 
that wrongly challenged Paul's apostolic authority. Now, we also see this in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about the division between Apollos, uh, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, some of Paul. And so there was some division there about whether we should follow Paul's uh, uh, apostolic authority. So whatever it was, whether it was the man caught in sin from 1 Corinthians 5, or whether it was actually another individual in the church that was being dealt with, it seems as though the people dealt with it well. Now, how do we know that? Go to verse 9. So verse 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through uh, 11 in a moment as a whole. But verse 9. For to this end also did I write. Now he's, he's talking about what? What I wrote you. I wrote to you before that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. So he's saying, I wrote to you before and the proof that I know you were going to show, the evident proof of what? Obedience. I knew you would obey these things. I knew you would be obedient in these things. And Paul's not writing opinions in this previous letter. He's writing apostolic commands. You have to, you need to do these things. And they did. And that's where the blessing came from. Whoever it was, the church seemed to deal with the situation according to Paul's direction. Now, let's look at verses 6 through 11. So 6 through 11, we, we talked about this. What is the big theme here? Forgiveness. Now, think of it in the context we just laid out, that this man was in sin. Paul wrote that that needed to be corrected. Seemingly, the church corrected that through a process that we most likely call church discipline. Now, it wasn't described that way in the New Testament as far as they would have that title, but we would call that a form of church discipline. And now that person seemingly has either repented, it's been dealt with, and now we can move forward. The church can move forward. The sinful man is restored. Paul says that that punishment exercised on this man, and not only by one in the church, but by how many in the church? How many people were involved in this process? It seems to suggest the church. All the believers were in agreement on this. The majority of the church, and that punishment is now adequate. Now, the goal of church discipline is to bring about restoration. And it seems as though that's what took place. Now, the term translated punishment here, which actually only appears in the Greek in this verse in the New Testament, has a tone that Paul's speaking to here, and it's possible that a softer word might be used. We might use the word reprimanded or scorn. That might be more accurate than punishment. When we think punishment, we think more severe and harsh punishment. Some have suggested that the Greek word could actually lend itself to more of a reprimand. So what we're saying here doesn't mean they didn't deal with the situation, but we don't think about the church bullying somebody or gathering up and just like pouncing on someone. They were doing this to hopefully bring about restoration and change of behavior. We are not told what the punishment was, but the man was apparently repentant. Paul believes the time for any kind of church discipline has come to an end. Paul urges the Corinthians to turn back to the man who has sinned against them and to forgive and comfort him. Now, if they don't, if they choose not to extend forgiveness. Now, this is where church discipline can take on a legalistic tone, right? Someone's in sin. It's being dealt with biblically. The church is coming alongside graciously trying to lead the person into restoration. And the person repents. And in some churches, the repentance is not believed until every individual involved has come to some understanding of an agreement that you've proven to me, now you're repentant. 
And I've heard that term before, proof of repentance. And what that really came to mean in the context that I was familiar with in that situation was, you need to prove to me that more or less you're now perfect like you should be. That now you've shown me individually, I can see and watch for weeks or months or years that you're not going to mess up again. That's legalism. That is not the goal of church discipline. Church discipline says the person's in sin. When they repent of sin in Christ, they are forgiven and free. Does that mean that we don't encourage them to make good decisions? Of course it does. But Paul's saying here, if you don't forgive them. By the way, he says if you forgive them, what will he do? If the church forgives this man, what's Paul's reaction going to be to this man? To forgive him. Paul's saying, I'm not going to do anything that you're not going to do as a church. Like if you as a church believe he's repented, I take you at, his, at that word. And we extend forgiveness. But what's going to be the negative consequence if they choose not to forgive? What might happen to this man if they choose not to forgive him? What does Paul say in the passage? We're, we're not a charismatic church. You guys can't. It sounded like you're speaking in tongues. I didn't know what was going on. Okay. Sandra's got it. <laughs> okay. So Sandra, go ahead. And then. Okay. An advantage over him. Kelsey. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> She's like, yep. Mm-hmm, yep. How else is it described there then? What? Yep. So there's. Two aspects here, right? There's the individual response of the man, and then there's what will happen spiritually. What's the individual's response going to be if they choose to not forgive? Sorrow, continued sorrow, swallowed up by sorrow. What that means is the man hasn't really come to understand that he's been forgiven, and he will continue to beat himself up and beat himself up and beat himself up with all of the weight of this sin. And then secondly, that will open a door of opportunity for Satan. Satan will use his sorrow against him. His flesh will use his sorrow against him. And in that will gain an advantage over him. I love that Paul says that we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. He says that in the passage, right? Hey, you guys know Satan's schemes. You know what he's going to do. If you don't extend forgiveness and restore this man, Satan will use that as a planned way, a planned strategy to tear this man down. You see, Satan's schemes have never changed. What was Satan's scheme in Genesis 3? If you had to boil it down, what was Satan really doing in Genesis 3? When he was tempting Eve. What was he trying, excuse me, trying to get her to believe and or to doubt? What's that, Jeff? Okay, to create doubt, but he was trying to get her to doubt something very specific. God's word, right? God said, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. And Satan says, what's Eve? You're not going to die. And in fact, God's jealous, doesn't want a rival. And if you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. And the minute that uh, Eve exchanged God's word for the word of the serpent, she doubted God's word, which is doubting what? God's character, God's heart, God's, God's love for us right? And that's Satan's scheme. The scheme is doubt God's word. And all through human history, no matter what way it's taken form, that's really the goal of Satan, right? To get us to doubt God's word. 
And so again, the schemes are not new. They're actually old. And by the way, why does Satan still use the same schemes? Because they work. They still work every time. So here we see that Paul saying, you're aware of this. He applies the same strategies over and over again. And what's the goal? To lead believers to feeling defeated and discouraged, believing God cannot use them or they are beyond restoration. That's what the enemy desires. So Paul's saying, don't give in to that. Don't allow that to take place. Extend forgiveness to them. Now, we get down to verse 12. Yes. 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 Absolutely. And that's why, what did David say in the Psalms over and over again when he admitted his sin? He said, my bed is soaked with sadness. My bones ache with sorrow. He there's a point where the Spirit will convict us unto repentance, right? We commit a sin, we're in Christ, the Spirit begins to reveal to us, and it's, to be honest, we knew we shouldn't have done it to begin with, but then we commit the sin and the Spirit's going, hey, you know that was wrong. You know you shouldn't have done, said, whatever. Now you need to repent of that. And that sorrow comes. There is a healthy sorrow that leads to repentance, there's an unhealthy sorrow that our flesh will take that conviction and want us to run much farther than God ever attended. And we will say, okay, God, would you please forgive me? We admit it, we repent of it, we turn from it, but our flesh will hold on to that. And then as time goes on, an opportunity will arise to serve Christ in some way. And our flesh will go, you can't do that. Don't you remember what you did over here? And we'll be grieved and we'll be overwhelmed with sorrow and we'll won't, we will not choose to surrender and to serve because we think, I can't do that. So again, there's a healthy level of conviction unto repentance, but the flesh will take that conviction and turn it into discouragement, defeat, and believing things that God has never said to be true. So we have to be guarded against that by knowing we're first forgiven by Christ, but also that means it's an encouragement then to forgive others, Right? When someone sins against you, you can go and extend forgiveness to them. And there's going to be times where they won't repent. They won't admit they were wrong. They won't say they're sorry. And we can still go and choose by grace to extend forgiveness and to say, I just want you to know I forgive you. And you're giving them an opportunity to then rise up against those schemes of the enemy. So Paul, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Really? Wow, I've never, I've never heard that. That's amazing. 
Wow. Well, and I think that's a great analogy then. Because I think so often we forget that we actually have the victory over Satan in Christ. That he is not overcoming us. We've overcome him through Christ. But yet there's times where we give him that advantage and we feel defeated. We feel as though, and I love that, that we're drowning in our sorrow. Absolutely. Great, great picture of that. Absolutely. Uh, Verses 12 through 13. It seems kind of odd, but remember Paul's kind of going through a timeline here of events. He's kind of explaining some things out here. Uh, in kind of somewhat of a narrative form, verses 12 and 13 speak about who. Who's been brought into this passage now? Another individual. Titus, right? And how do, what does he call Titus? My brother. Now, not biological, but what? Spiritual, right? He's saying he's my spiritual brother in Christ. Now, Paul was apparently going to connect with Titus. And now what do we know about Titus? And if we really had time to do this, what you would do on your own studies, what I would encourage is if you're reading a passage and you go, oh, Titus, I recognize that name. Stop right there. Don't read any farther and begin to look into who Titus is. Understand the ministry of Titus. What is he doing? What is he about? Now you may know this already. So who is Titus? What do we know of Titus here? In the New Testament. Okay, he's a pastor, right? Paul writes him his own letter, right? The book of Titus, okay? We know that from that letter that he is somebody of leadership in the church, most likely a pastor. So there's obviously a great connection here to Paul. But what also do we learn about Titus's ministry here, even in 2 Corinthians? He's not just pastoring a church. He's what? He's actively preaching the gospel. He's actively evangelizing and sharing Christ with those around him. And so again, we see a lot about this individual. And what is Paul's heart here? Paul is troubled that Titus could not meet with him. So again, I want to point out some things here that he cares so much for Titus. He wants to meet with him to minister to him and to be ministered by him or rather ministered to by him. And yet he's so heartbroken that he could not connect with Titus on this trip. And then he says he went from there, thence into Macedonia. He continued to minister. Paul continues to minister. But I don't want to miss that Paul is clear about something in these two verses that I think we could miss if we're not paying attention. Notice in verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, it seems silly, maybe, underline Christ's gospel. Why would that be so important to note? Not a trick question. Why is it so important to underline Christ's gospel? Yes. It's not Paul's gospel. It didn't originate with Paul. Paul's preaching a gospel given to him. That seems silly, but I think it's very important that not only Paul remembered that in all of his spiritual success, but also that we remember that, that when we're preaching Christ's gospel, not only is it his gospel, as we're going to see in a second, it's his harvest. He's doing the work. Because then he goes on to say this in verse 12. And a door was opened unto me of the Lord. So it's Christ's gospel. And who opened the door for Paul to even preach the gospel? Christ. The Lord did that. So again, we see that this is vital to understand that he is not preaching his own gospel, but Christ's. This is vital because we live in a time when the gospel, 
we may hear preached in a church is not necessarily Christ's gospel, but a different gospel altogether. A man's gospel, a self-centered gospel, the prosperity gospel that teaches health, blessing, and and prosperity, and you're always going to be healthy, you're always going to have a full bank account, right? The Joel Olsteins of the world. It sounds really good, and it fills a huge arena full of people, but that's not the gospel. That's man's gospel, right? This prosperity gospel, or this progressive gospel, that it's all about you, and all about what you want, and whatever satisfies you, and you can be as sinful as you want, you can do whatever you want, it's fine, because at the end of the day, God just loves you, And this is why we see so much of the affirming things happening in churches. That is not Christ's gospel. That is man's gospel. And Galatians talks about this. It's another, but not of the same kind. It's a different gospel. It's a foreign gospel. And so Paul's adamant, I'm only preaching one gospel. It's not mine, right? He wouldn't even have called himself to be an apostle, by the way. We talked about that in a previous passage. So here... We need to note not only that it's Christ's gospel, but as we just said, that it is the Lord who opens the door to preach the gospel effectively. It is his harvest, Matthew chapter 9. He is doing the work of drawing and illuminating the need for salvation. You can preach the gospel all day long to someone, but if the Spirit of God did not work in that person's heart to illuminate their understanding to the need of the gospel, to illuminate their understanding of what sin really is, you have zero effect of leading them to Christ. You cannot save anyone. But the reason it is effective to share our faith as human beings with limited knowledge and and an inability to change their hearts is because when I open the word of God, he says his spirit will work in that moment. And he begins to do the work of salvation or drawing unto salvation. And I am now just a conduit, just a vessel, as Paul was. I'm just proclaiming the gospel And as I'm proclaiming the gospel, in and of itself, God has promised he will work in that, in the word and through the spirit. And that individual now begins to be pricked in their heart, as we read about in the book of Acts. They start to tremble with the fear of God, and they realize, I need that salvation. Now, they may reject it. They may denounce it. They may ignore that that longing of the spirit. That's the choice that God gives them. But we would have zero chance of leading anyone to Christ if the Spirit didn't work in that moment. Because I can't open someone's mind to the gospel. Now, I can convince a lot of people of a lot of things. I can argue someone into faith. I can convince someone into faith, as we said this morning. But it's not true faith if the Spirit doesn't work. And I think there's a lot of people that have raised their hands in church for salvation and prayed a prayer, not because the Spirit was working in the sense that they responded to that, but because they felt guilty and they wanted to fit in with what everyone else was doing. And they just wanted, okay, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds good. I I want that. But there was no true conversion because they didn't allow themselves to be open to the Spirit. Jeff. Yes. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're religious. They've gone through the motions, but there's no relationship. Absolutely. That's why I, I genuinely think trying to lead someone who is a staunch religious churchgoer with no connection to Jesus Christ, that person to Christ is so much more difficult than the avid atheist who says there is no God. Because at least the atheist is honest about where they are. The religious person thinks they have Christ and they don't. And that's a, that's a very scary thing to experience. So, 
we're over time, but I think we can go through the last couple of verses if you guys are okay with that. Awesome. I'm so glad you approve. All right. I, I, we weren't taking a motion or anything. There was no vote. It's just, it's just yeah, no. Um, the Spirit already told me we were going to go, so argue, argue with him. Um, not audibly, though. That would be... Anyway, so verses 14 through 17. Um, before this, verse uh, 13 actually ends kind of this unfolding of this narrative um, as Paul then talks about moving to minister in Macedonia and then he breaks from the narrative. Now you can note if you would like to for your own personal study, he will return to this narrative about ministering in Macedonia in chapter 7 verse 5. So from this point of chapter 2 to chapter 7 verse 5, he kind of breaks from this narrative. He talks about, I went to Macedonia to minister breaks from that. Then in chapter 7, verse 5, he picks up again what God was doing in that ministry. But what does he do in verses 14 through 17? Paul gives praise to the Lord. He breaks from the narrative to give praise to the Lord. So here we see uh, verse 14 I talked about already. Uh, the beginning of verse 14 is so powerful. We must remember that no matter our circumstances, that we will always triumph in Christ. No matter our circumstances, we will always triumph in Christ. Paul describes God's work of triumph as something many of his readers would have been familiar with. And in studying this out, I came across this. I thought it was very interesting. A Roman victory procession. So a Roman victory procession. So this would again be familiar with those in Corinth. This was a parade in which a victorious Roman general would march his soldiers and captured enemies through the streets in triumph. Paul compares that to what God does for believers in Christ. He leads us in triumphal procession, making use of us as prisoners captured from the enemy, in a sense, now available to accomplish his purposes. So he has rescued us from the enemy. He has, in sense, rescued us, and then by our own choosing, choosing we've imprisoned ourselves to Christ. Paul says, I'm a bond servant to Christ. We're servants of Christ, but we walk in victory over the enemy. Not only will we triumph, but God will work through us the evident power and knowledge of Christ in the gospel. And one author said this way, and I love this, in the palace or in the prison, that is true. In the palace or in the prison, the evident power of Christ will be made known. Paul experienced firsthand both the palace and the prison. He knew what it was to be in both those situations. And God used him as God uses us to make known the mystery of the gospel. The illusion not only is that of a, a victorious army marching through the streets triumphant, it's also that, as Sandra pointed to, this illusion of a sweet savior, savor or an aroma that went up as an offering. Again, historical uh, commentaries say this, that the Roman victory parades would also use incense and burned incense in celebration of the defeat of Rome's enemies. In that way, people could both see and smell the evidence of a captured foe as it passed by. Paul uses that description of God's use of his willing captives, Christians, in a similar way. He uses us to spread the fragrance of his knowledge everywhere we go. This aroma that comes up from our lives in Christ will affect two groups of people differently. And as Jeff alluded to, there's only two groups. 
Paul says it this way. There are those that are saved or being saved. In verse 15, for we are unto God a sweet uh, Savior of Christ, an aroma in them that are saved and in them that are or them that perish. Now you can, in some translations, they actually say it as in those that are being saved and those that are perishing. And both are true. In God's knowledge, if I'm in Christ, I'm saved and I'm being saved. Those that are going to perish because they've rejected Christ, they are going to perish and they're perishing. Present tense. What does John say in John 3, 16, 17? Right? Those that believe, they have eternal life. Those that don't are condemned already. They're already condemned. Why? Because God is sovereign. He knows these things. And so there's two groups. Those that are being saved, the present work of God's grace. Life unto life would be that group, which we see in the next verse 16. And those that perish or those that are perishing, death unto death. Philippians 1 says this as well. If you can jot it down for time's sake, we're not going to turn there. But Philippians 1, you can go there and look at that. He talks about this idea of of the evident power of God in us and that there's this token of salvation, this obvious token of salvation that to us that are saved, it's victory, it's victorious, it's glorious. But those that are perishing, it's condemnation. It's discouraging because they understand and will understand one day that they had the chance that the gospel rejected. So then poses a question at the end of verse 16. You see that there at the end of verse 16. And who is sufficient for these things? Now, he doesn't answer the question in verse 17. You have to actually, and you can mark this down, uh, chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He's going to answer that question. I'll give you the answer. Who is adequate for these things? No one. He basically says, our sufficiency is of God. We are not adequate in of ourselves to have eternal life, to have this life unto life. We're not in ourselves adequate to have the victory and the triumph that we have in Christ. It all comes by grace. And so the chapter ends with an interesting contrast. Uh, David actually pointed this out when we were kind of sharing the themes of the passage. The contrast that Paul makes between himself and false teachers that are corrupt or corrupting the word of God. Another translation says they peddle the word of God, as I think David alluded to. So these teachers, our false teachers, are motivated by greed, not sincerity. They're selling the word. They're basically trying to make as much profit off the word as they can. And Paul's saying, in contrast, we are not doing that. We are sincerely preaching the gospel of Christ. And why does he say they're doing that? The verse 17 tells us, he says, but as of sincerity... But as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Why is Paul adamantly saying we are preaching the word accurately? We desire to preach Christ's gospel, not our own. Why is Paul saying that's so important to him? What do we read in verse 17 that tells us why Paul thinks this way? Because others aren't, yeah. His motivation also is listed in verse 17. In the sight of God. So Paul's saying, I'm going to give an account for this one day. So what motivated Paul to preach the gospel accurately according to God's word? He knew one day I would give an account for God for this, to God for this. And I need to make sure that by God's grace, I'm preaching his gospel, not my own. And if I can share this with you guys, we all, 
will give an account when we stand before Christ. Not for salvation that is sealed and finished in the gospel, but we will give an account for the things we do for Christ. And not only is he watching us right now, we are doing everything in the sight of God. By the way, the wicked are doing everything in the sight of God as well. They reject that he's there, but Romans 2 says they're just storing up wrath on the day of judgment. They think they're getting away with it because there's no instant judgment. God's not sending down firebolts. But one day, Paul says, he will give an account. Or he will bring those to an account. And so Paul says, I need to make sure I'm doing this right because God is watching me. And one day I'll give an account to him firsthand. And I believe we will give an account as well. So what's our encouragement tonight? What's our application? Let us speak of Christ as we are in Christ for the glory of the Lord. We speak of the Lord. We speak of Christ because we're in Christ and it's all for his glory. Not our gospel, but his gospel. Any final thoughts or comments before we pray and are dismissed? I know that was a lot of content right at the very end, but any thoughts, comments, or questions before we dismissed? All right. Let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. And Lord, thank you for this encouragement we find kind of buried in this passage that we will always, we will always triumph in Christ. Lord, I know that in this life, that's not always how it seems. We actually feel at times the opposite is true. That it's the enemy and the wicked that are triumphing, that are winning ground. But when we start to feel that way, our perspective has gotten off of the heavenly and onto the earthly things. And so help us to know that your word is true despite our circumstances, despite how we feel. But that because there is grace and because by grace, through faith, we have been saved. We are triumphing. We will triumph one day. You've given us the victory. And one day we will see the fullness of that victory face to face with you. And so we thank you for the reality of that truth. Help us to live in it this week, not to be discouraged or defeated. Help us to realize the power that comes in not only knowing that we are forgiven by you, but being able to extend forgiveness one to another and see those individuals that maybe have stumbled into sin be restored, active, pursuing you and the ministry that you've called them to. And again, for your glory. And the reason that we need to be, Lord, kind of anxious to forgive, willing to forgive so quickly is because we ourselves will and have needed forgiveness. And so help us to extend grace where grace is needed. Thank you for this amazing picture of a church that we know, Lord, had many struggles and many troubles, but in this instance seem to have done the right thing. So thank you that we can be a church as well that calls sin, sin, and and, and corrects sinful behavior and desires to come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ and to lead them to live godly, to seek righteousness. So thank you that we can be that kind of church. But also, Lord, help us to be understanding that we need to extend forgiveness when those individuals repent and turn from their sin. We need to restore those individuals because that is the greatest demonstration of the gospel. And so, Lord, help us to speak of Christ this week, knowing that you are watching, that we are in Christ, and we are giving a testimony of you. 
Thank you for using us this week in advance of whatever we're going to go through. Bless the conversations that we have. And then again, that you would be glorified in all of this. Father, we love you. Give us a great week ahead and bring us back on Wednesday. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.